Judges chapter 6 today. I'll be looking at a message entitled, From Zero to Hero. I hope that you have been enjoying our message series this summer through Judges. I know that it has challenged me. The theme of the study has been defeat and deliverance. And a lot of times that's the same paradigm that we live in, defeat and deliverance. Judges chapter 6 today. It's been said, maybe you've heard the phrase that crisis does not just create character, it reveals character. And that statement was put to the test when a normal day turned into a terrifying crisis for those on board the doomed United Flight 93 of September 11th, 2001. There was one 32-year-old man on that flight named Todd Beamer who made a decision in the chaos that he would rather die fighting than on his knees. And when the hijackers took over Flight 93, they forced all the passengers to the back of the plane. That's when Todd Beamer and a handful of brave Americans began to formulate a plan. They were going to take back control of the plane from the terrorists or die trying. Passengers who were talking to loved ones, sending out final farewells on their cell phones, said that just prior to the counterattack that Todd Beamer gathered his brave little band of soldiers together. He led them in a prayer and from memory recited Psalm 23. Now how many of you could do that under such pressure and duress? Todd Beamer's last words heard through a passenger's cell phone were this. Are you guys ready? Let's roll. They had no weapons to fight with. Beamer and others, though, subdued the terrorists and made their way into the cockpit. In a fight to the death, Beamer forced the hijackers to crash the 747 into a rural field close by Shanksville, Pennsylvania. All 44 passengers on United 93 died that day, but Todd Beamer's courage under fire, they say, saved potentially hundreds if not thousands of lives because it was later learned that the intended target for the hijackers was the White House. In the crisis, Todd Beamer answered a call to fight, to self-sacrifice, a call to lead the charge. And in that day and in that moment, he went from being unknown to being unforgettable. From being a spectator to a soldier. From an ordinary guy to an extraordinary hero. And I think that's also a fitting description of the men and women that we have met in this Old Testament book of Judges. Because in the book of Judges, what we have noticed is unlikely heroes whom God called from unexpected places who showed unparalleled courage in uncertain times. And there's no better example in the Bible of a man going from a zero to a hero than Gideon. We first meet Gideon here in Judges chapter 6. And as we do, we do not see a triumphant fighter, but we see a trembling farmer. At first, as you study Gideon's life, here's a man who's filled with more fear than faith. 
Now, just to give you a little snapshot of Gideon's place in the Scriptures, you should know that more space is devoted to Gideon in the book of Judges than any other leader. There's about a hundred verses in our Bible on the life of Gideon. Gideon starts out as a coward, and then he becomes a conqueror, but then we notice at the end of his life he fails and he is a compromiser. And yet, despite that failing, God saw fit to include his name in the Hebrew Hall of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, there you find Gideon's name. Now, just like you and me, I believe that Gideon had to find his courage in God's calling. He was not a man prone to action, prone to bravery, or to leadership, and yet God called him anyway, God used him mightily, and many of us may feel the same way as Gideon did on the day when the angel of the Lord appeared to him and he was in a hole in the ground. But God is still calling leaders today. Amen? He's still calling for folk to be bold, to be brave, to believe in Him for the impossible, believe in Him for the victory, believe in Him for the miracle. God is still calling men and women like Gideon who are fearful, who are hiding, who are reserved, and who are giving excuses for why they can't be used. If you're doubting today, if you're fearful today, if you're sending out a hand in the face of God saying, God, no, not me, no, not now, this message is for you. Because God is calling somebody today to a greater level of faith, to a greater level of obedience, to set aside the fear and to live in boldness and in courage today. That's what we see as we look at the call of Gideon from zero to hero. Now, as we begin our text today, I want you to notice with me, number one, the crisis of a corrupt generation. The crisis of a corrupt generation. We'll read verse 1 together. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Years. And then verse 2 says this, And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. Now if you're keeping count, my friends, this is the fourth cycle of sin that we see emerge here among God's people as we have studied this book. God had done a tremendous thing when He raised up Deborah and Barak to deliver God's people in the previous section. In fact, the last verse of chapter 5, uh, verse 31, if you scroll your eyes up there, you learn that after the ministry of Deborah and Barak, that a 40-year period of peace had rested upon the land. A golden age, if you will, of peace. But the generation that followed soon after that they took their eyes off the Lord as you and I are prone to do as church history bears out. And just like their ancestors, the nation began to slide again down that hill into idolatry and immorality. As the people turned away from God, the Bible says that God gave them over to the harsh discipline of a band of people known as the Midianites. In other words, God allowed the Midianites to be the chastising and disciplining rod upon His people. And the Bible says 
in verse 1 and 2 that there was a seven-year period of cruelty, of oppression that came upon Israel, and they suffered greatly. Now, as we read those first two verses, we already noticed one way that Israel suffered during this time. First off, there was what I call a crisis of intimidation. There was a crisis of intimidation. And we read there in verses 1 and 2 that God's people were so fearful of the Midianites that the Bible says they actually ran for the hills. They retreated into the caves and the dens. They, they left their homes and their dwellings to go seek refuge in the mountains. Of course, as you can see there, they were intimidated. They were so afraid of the big bad Midianites that they packed their beanie weenies, packed their ramen noodles, so to speak, and they headed for the hills. I mean, you talk about doomsday preppers. Just the thought of hearing that the Midianites were knocking on the door sent their knees knocking and them running in intimidation. And friend, here's what I want you to see as it applies to our lives today. Do you know that one of Satan's main weapons against the church today is fear? It's intimidation. He wants us to think that he's better than he really is. That God's abandoned the church. That God's word isn't truthful anymore. That God has abandoned this, this country. And that there is no plan for us. And Satan wants us to begin to believe the lies and to be intimidated. To live in fear. To hide in, behind the four walls of our church and not encounter the battle that is outside this building. You know, and when Christians give in to fear, you know what happens? We give up ground to the enemy. And the enemy begins to claim what is rightfully ours. Imagine how foolish this is to leave your home and go run up into the hills and the mountains and then just leave themselves open for plunder. And yet when we as Christians, when we as the church live in fear, we give up our peace. Uh, Satan takes our power. We lose our presence as salt and light in the culture. And we shrink away. And then we become irrelevant. And soon enough, we die. Now, we have lived through uh, probably one of the most fearful times that I can imagine in, in my lifetime at least. And if living through this pandemic and all of 2020 and 21 has done, it has shown us humanity's darkest fears brought to the forefront. There was a group of doctors and psychologists I was reading about earlier this week who did a nationwide study. And they wanted to know what was the number one fear among Americans today, not just in 2020, but also this year as well. And the number one fear was death, and not just death, but death as a result of contracting COVID and the fear, listen, of dying alone. The fear of dying alone. Now we can understand how an unbeliever might be fearful of that, but not of God's people and not of God's child because God has promised us the presence of the Holy Spirit in our deepest, darkest problem and plight. He's also promised us the, the, the darling Savior that He will guide us through as life shepherd the valley of the shadow of death. But that fear that has really been a pandemic of its own in our nation and how the church really responded to that in some ways was negative, I believe. And I want to ask you the question today, does the enemy have you living in fear this morning? 
Are you living under that intimidation factor that Israel was dealing with? Because, friend, I'm telling you, if you turn on the news, if you listen to social media, if you listen to the so-called talking heads of our world, there's always a reason to fear. There's always another variant strain of the virus. There's always an enemy knocking at the door. There's always something coming for your joy, your peace, your state of mind. The devil wants you to be intimidated by that and live in abject worry and fear. Am I preaching on anybody's uh, situation here today? There's always Listen, the devil has a tailor-made fear for every weakness in every person. Even preachers. Yeah, hey, there's the fear of failure. There's the fear of death. There's the fear of persecution from the so-called cancel culture. There's the fear of whatever social media conspiracy theory is going hot this week. There always be some kind of fear out there to threaten the vitality and the strength of God's people. But I'm here to remind you today that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. This land belonged to Israel. It was theirs by divine inheritance. God had run the enemies out and gave it to them. But out of intimidation, out of fear, they retreated and gave up what was rightfully theirs to an invader. And how many of you know that sometimes that fear is really false evidence appearing real? We begin to believe lies about things that really won't even come into our lives. But the devil has us snookered. There was a crisis of intimidation in Israel. This crooked and lost generation who'd forgot the things that God had done. A crisis of intimidation. But then also notice this. A crisis of impoverishment. A crisis of impoverishment. Look at what happens in verse 3 as we read together. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, watch this, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them and they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey for they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number both they and their camels not to be counted so that they laid waste of the land as they came in and Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. There was a crisis of impoverishment. Notice this. The Midianites and the other ites who had joined them in a coalition came up with a unique strategy for dominating Israel. Rather than just coming in roughshod and conquering the people, they had them so intimidated, so living in fear, that all they had to do was show up and then the Midianites waited until the Israelites had planted and harvested their crops. And then they came in at the opportune time and stole all their livestock and all their food. And the Bible says, especially if you're reading the old King James, it says that they were impoverished. There was great poverty in the land. So think about this. Israel is in famine and the enemy is feasting. Now, I don't have to imagine... What this is like, we've got a few gardeners in here. You know exactly what this is about. If you've ever raised a garden, you know how frustrating it can be to till up the ground, to plant, to water, to fertilize. And then, before you ever get a single morsel in the ground, you're fighting the bugs. You're fighting the rabbits and the crows and the groundhogs. And they can have it eat up before you ever get it on your dining room plate. Amen? 
One year, this was a couple years ago, my papa, when he was still alive, he had given me some corn seed. And he said, now take this and plant this. This will be some of the best seed you ever had. Well, I made the mistake of taking it. It was in a brown bag, and I put it in my storage building. It was kind of early spring, wasn't ready to plant yet, but I had it. Well, the day came for planting, and I went out there to look, and as I opened up the, the bag, I noticed it was a lot lighter than it should have been. And as I peered in there, there was like one or two kernels left, and one of them was half eaten, and there was a mouse-sized hole in the bottom of that bag. And the mice, the blasted mice, had got to my corn seed before I could ever get it in the ground. Lesson learned, right? My uncle, he's a... Uh, He's an avid beekeeper. My uncle keeps some hives up at my daddy's property, and my uncle told the story that last year a bear came through and knocked over about four or five of his hives and ate every single bit of honeycomb out of that before he could ever get a drop of it. Brother Clifford tells a story of planting a great stand of corn one year. He comes home, and the, the crows are bu buzzing above the farm. And he looked out, and they had picked all of his corn cobs clean before he ever got a corn on the cob. He, hey, he went down with a fight. So you don't have to imagine if you've ever raised a garden... What, how frustrating this would be. How impoverished they were. They couldn't go to Ingalls. They didn't have Amazon. There was no way to, to meet the hunger need in their life. They had been plundered. You know, as I read this today, church, I think that the, much of the church today, listen to me, is in the same predicament as Israel was in this time. Because as you look upon the landscape of the church today, not only are we living in fear in a lot of ways, but we are spiritually impoverished Listen, the other day I saw a picture, and I've got this picture I want to show you of a church sign. Look at what they put on their church sign. Jesus had two dads, and he turned out just fine. Now you read between the message of that, the lines of that, and you see what the message is. It doesn't stop there. Pastors now today in their churches are going woke all over our culture. Pastors are giving sermons about quote-unquote white fragility and social justice. This was in the headlines of a national newspaper. Listen to this. The Christian Post. One example is the Grace Point Church in Nashville, Tennessee. A large megachurch that recently made a splash when its pastor, Josh Scott, preached a message. Here was the title of the message, What is Progressive Christianity? Boy, doesn't that raise uh, something in you and make you want to come and listen. In the message, listen to what he announced. The Bible isn't the Word of God. That was the central point of his message. Well, then what are we doing, brother? Why are we gathering? Just to... Have, sing kumbaya and pat each other on the back and go home? If the Bible isn't the Word of God, we're wasting our time. This fellow doesn't even believe the book that he gets his so-called messages from. They also announced this church that they were dropping Baptists from its name to the applause of many. You see, we're spiritually impoverished across our nation as a church. Like Israel who, who had come to starve in the book of Judges. There, are, Listen, there are so many churches in this country who are so weak in Bible, who are so weak in their doctrine, they have no spiritual nourishment to offer the people when they come in. So they give a pep talk, or 
They give ten ways to live your best life. They never even open the Word of God to feed the people. Lord, are we not in that same situation today? God, help us! We're in a dry and thirsty land. Where's some men of God to stand up and open the Word of God and say, Thus saith the Lord, there is hope. There is help. There is a God in heaven. There is a Savior who conquered death. Hey, don't live in intimidation and in the spirit of the age. There's so many churches that has replaced the gospel with social justice. They've taken the Christian flag down and put up the gay flag. They've taken their cues from the media and from celebrities and from Instagram rather than from the Scriptures. And friend, listen to me. If the church goes woke, it'll be spiritually broke in the next generation. You see, because the devil, he doesn't play fair. There's always a raw deal associated with him. And many churches in this nation, listen, they've been plundered by the enemy just as Israel was plundered in their time. They walked away from the preaching and the teaching and the obedience to God's Word. They've sold out to the idols of the day, tolerance and social justice and LBGT and a CRT and all these other things. And you know what happens when the church does that? We become impoverished. We lose our voice. We lose our place. We lose our power. We have nothing to offer the world when we look just like them, think just like them, preach the same things that they can hear on CNN. God help us today. Israel thought, hey, if we adopt the gods of the nations around us, if we will be like them, we'll be blessed. But really, they were oppressed. It's always the raw deal of idolatry. Instead of freedom, we get slavery. And so you can see the burden that I'm preaching with today. Notice, number one, the crisis of a corrupt generation. That's how Gideon's call is born. There was a crisis in the land. And there's a crisis in our land today for leaders, for men of God, for women of faith to stand up and hear the voice of God. And that leads us to number two, the calling of a cowardly general. The calling of a cowardly general. Notice how God comes to Gideon, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Orphrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon, watch this, was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel From the hand of Midian, do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. The calling of a cowardly general. If you were making a list in Israel that day of the most likely to lead the people to victory, Gideon would not even be on the list. I highly doubt that Gideon 
was expecting the call of God in this drudgery, in this mundane task that he was doing that day when the angel of the Lord, which by the way is an Old Testament reference to Jesus Christ before Bethlehem, appeared to him. And notice this, when God found Gideon, here's a man who's suffering from a terrible inferiority complex. I'm the runt of the litter. You can't use me. I'm weak. And not only that, God found him in the bottom of a hole. You don't get any lower than this. By the way, how many of you in here like dad jokes? I used to make fun of my dad's jokes, and now I'm the one telling the dad jokes. But I thought about Gideon, and somebody sent me this joke the other day about a man who couldn't keep a job. And as I heard this man give this speech and this joke, I thought, wow, that's Gideon. So listen to this. A man went into an interview to his potential boss, and the boss looked at the man's resume and said, wow, you sure have had a lot of jobs in your life. Tell me, why have you had so many jobs? The man said, well, my first job was at an orange juice factory, but I got canned. They said I couldn't concentrate. Next, I tried working in a muffler factory, but that was exhausting. After that, I tried to be a tailor, but I wasn't suited for it. Then I worked in the woods as a lumberjack, but I couldn't hack it, and they gave me the axe. (laughs) I worked for a while in a deli making sandwiches, but anyway, I sliced it. I couldn't cut the mustard. (laughs) I tried being a musician, but I wasn't very noteworthy. Next, I was a barber for a while, but people said I couldn't cut it. Finally, I tried being a history teacher, and then I realized there just wasn't any future in it. (laughs) It's so bad, it's good. It's a dad joke. But as I thought about Gideon and all the excuses and all the moaning and all the complaining, every front that he put up in front of God, don't we do that in our lives as well? Don't miss the irony of Gideon's calling here. Threshing, which is what he was doing when Jesus came to him, threshing was done out in the open was done on a platform where they brought the wheat in and with a fork they threw up the wheat grain and the wind blew the chaff off and the heavy wheat fell to the ground and then they took that and harvested and made their flour out of it. Gideon is so scared at this moment of the oppression of the Midianites that he's taken his task down into a hole. He's down in a wine press. That's where they take the grapes and they put it in a hole and they squish it up with their feet. He's so afraid, he's so scared of what the Midianites might do to him that when God finds him, he is almost six feet under. I mean, you can't get any lower than this. Gideon, let's be honest, was a coward. But God wanted him anyway. God wanted this man anyway. And there's two facets about God's calling that I want you to see here. First off, God saw potential. Some of you need to listen real carefully the next few minutes of this sermon because you don't see any potential in your life. Listen to what I've got to say here. Gideon gave a long line of excuses. Did you hear what he said? He said, I'm from the least of all the tribes in Israel, and beyond that, I'm the runt in the family. Sometimes we think we know more about ourselves than what God knows about ourselves. And He's the one who made us. Let me tell you something. You're not the expert on you. The one who made you is the expert on you. And Gideon tried to tell Jesus, in this passage, the angel of the Lord, uh, why he couldn't be used. 
Imagine what an insult that is when we say the same thing to God and when we make the same excuses. God, you can't use me. My past is too checkered. God, I can't teach that class. I don't have time to study. God, I can't witness. That's not my spiritual gift. Lord, I can't tithe and give because I'm in debt. Lord, I can't be on that committee because I just don't have time in my schedule. We're real good about giving the Lord a line of excuses for why He can't put us on the front lines of battle. How many times have we walked away from serving God because we were more focused on our weakness than God's strength? That's where Gideon was in all of this. In fact, he even said, look, look, God's abandoned us. Why did all these things happen to us? You notice that the Lord didn't even address that question. The Lord didn't even answer the question that Gideon asked. He just looked at Gideon and said, You are a mighty man of valor. In other words, God saw potential in this coward who is in the bottom of a hole. And God called Gideon not on the basis of who he was at that moment, but who he would be under the anointing hand and power of God's Spirit. You see, see, some of us are like Gideon. We have become content in living substandard, below the level of mediocrity. Well, I guess it won't get any better than this. We believe the lies, we believe the fear, and we become content doing our work living in a hole. And God comes along and says, I didn't make you for that. I know something about your life that maybe you can't see right now. There's a mighty man of valor in there. There's a mighty woman of faith in there. And God sees potential when only we see problems. Sometimes God's got to come along and, and, and knock on your door and say, Hey, I didn't make you to live in a hole. I created you for more. There's a destiny ahead. There's a calling on your life. If you'll only listen to the way that I am defining you. You see, we don't know us as well as we think we do. Only God can see the areas and the stages of our life, past, present, and future. And if God can look ahead and God can see the destiny in your life, then it's time to get out of the pit and start believing the truth of God as He speaks it over your life. God said to Gideon, look, your future is better than your past. You're a mighty man of valor. What are you doing down there in that hole? And Gideon is not called because he's courageous, but he's made courageous because of the call. You see the difference? God comes to us. You know how powerful and amazing that is? God came to Gideon. We don't ever go to God. God comes to us. I'm thankful for a day when I was scared, when I didn't really know the Bible, when I was not really all the way committed to God. God sat down in a pew next beside of me in the person of the Holy Spirit as the pastor was preaching. And he said to me, little Derek McCarson, about 19 years old, one day you'll be up there preaching the Word of God. And I said, no God, not me. I don't know enough. I'm not knowledgeable enough. I'm not strong enough. I don't have any money. I'm from the wrong family. I gave God every single excuse I could. But God sat down beside of me and showed me some potential that even I had yet to believe in my life. And I'm telling you, God sees potential. God sees potential when we see problems. And God comes to us. 
Jesus came to the disciples and said, Won't you follow me? I'll make you a fisher of men. God came to Paul on the road to Damascus and zapped him and blinded him and said, Now I've got a real mission for you. Instead of persecuting the church, you're going to be the greatest preacher of the church. I'm thankful that there's a God who seeks. I'm thankful that there's a God who will find you even when you don't want to be found. When you're running, when you're hiding, when you say, God, not me... He'll get you down in that pit and He'll speak to you and say, what are you doing living down here? There's a need. There's a call. There's a destiny. Get out there and live for it. God saw potential in Gideon's life. Some of us need to turn the mirror on ourselves. The mirror of the Word of God and let what God says about us wash over our mind. And wash over our soul. That I'm saved. That I'm heaven bound. That I'm born again by the Spirit of God. That I'm filled with the same Spirit of God that brought Jesus out of the grave. That my past is gone. That my future is really bright. That I'm a servant of the King. That I'm a child of God. That I'm called to live by faith. All these things that God says who you are in Ephesians 1. Called, redeemed, predestined, set apart, holy. All these things as you begin to believe what God says about you. It will change your whole life. Because some of you have been wallowing in this pit of, I can't be used. My past is too broken. I'm unlovable. God can't use me. You need to start believing the potential that God says He sees in you. Not because you're great. Oh no. Gideon wasn't great. Gideon was a coward. But because He's great. Because Jesus is faithful. Because God says, I can do all things. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ. Centuries ago, during the Renaissance, there were several workmen who brought in a great marble block into the city of Florence, Italy. It had come from the famous marble quarries of Carrera, but it contained imperfections. In fact, when the sculptor Donatello saw this block of marble, he refused to work on it. And so there this block of marble lay in a cathedral yard as a useless thing. Then one day a sculptor caught sight of the flawed block. As he examined it, an inspiration rose up within him. There was something in that block of immense beauty, and he resolved to sculpt it. For two years the artist worked feverishly chiseling away, And finally, on January 24th, 1504, the greatest artists of the day assembled to see what had been made of this despised and rejected block. And as the veil dropped to the floor, the statue was met with a chorus of applause. It was undoubtedly a masterpiece for the ages, and the succeeding centuries have confirmed that judgment. It was Michelangelo's David. And it is one of the greatest works of art that the world has ever known. And I'm here today to inform you that what the world throws away and what the world says can't be used and what the world casts away in a pit, God comes along and says, I'll take what's broken. I'll take the weak. I'll take the unbelieving. I'll take the refuge of the world because I only work with broken things. So that when God works on a man or a woman or through a man or a woman, there's no explaining 
understanding it. There's no doubt about who to give the glory when the work is done. It wasn't going to be because of Gideon. It was going to be because of a great God who said, you will conquer them as one man. And when God gets glory out of you and me, it's all about Jesus. It's all about His power. Some of you folk are like Gideon today. You're stuck in a pit. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But thank God that my God has a plan for pit people. If you've been living in that pit, listen to me. Joseph went down in the pit, and when God got him out of it, and when God was through with him, he was prime minister over Egypt. Uh, Joseph found himself in the pit of a whale's belly at the bottom of the sea, and yet when God got done with him, he was a revival preacher that set the city of Nineveh on fire. Gideon got started out in the pit, but when God was done with him, he was a five-star general, and David said, Oh, he drew me up from the pit and put my feet upon a solid rock. Listen, it's time to start getting rid of the lies of the enemy and start believing the Word of God and get out of that pit. Get out of the pit. There's a battle to fight. There's a calling to heed. God saw potential. But then also notice this. God guaranteed His presence. Oh, I love this. God guaranteed His presence twice in this passage, verse 12 and verse 16. Look at what God said. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Drop down to verse 16. Look at this. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. Twice God said, You're going with my presence, Gideon. When God guarantees His presence, listen, you know what also comes along with that? His power, His provision, His protection, His peace. Are you getting the picture right now? Gideon was only one man, but he was on the right side of things. And when God guides, God provides. And with God's commandments come God's enablements. All Gideon could say was, I'm, I'm one man. Yeah, but God was with him. I've never been real good about math, but I know a simple fact, and that's this. God plus one is a majority. And the size of the Midianite army didn't matter. The lack of weapons in Israel didn't matter. The cowardice of the leader in Gideon didn't matter because it was God's presence who was going to deliver this man and these people. And if God be for us, who shall be against us? I know what they say about the church out there, that the church is weak, that the church is dying, that the culture is taking over, that people don't think the way they used to. People don't raise their family the way they used to. The media wants to pronounce death on the church the world wants us to sit down and shut up and stay in our little religious corner and don't be salt and light anymore but I'm telling you I'm going forward because I've got Jesus with me I've got the Holy Spirit striving within me I've got the word of God and the Bible says if God be for us who shall be against us don't be afraid of the cancel culture don't be afraid of the world don't be afraid of the enemy go forward with God's power when David Livingston came back to his native Scotland after 16 years of difficult time as a missionary in Africa his body was emaciated by the ravages of disease 
His left arm was useless because he'd been attacked by a lion. His arm was mangled. He spoke to students there at Glasgow University and a young man stood up during the Q&A and said, Sir, Mr. Livingston, how did you keep going on after facing one adversity after another? David Livingston gave this simple reply. He said, It was Christ's promise. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. The God who made a way for Moses and the God who crumbled Jericho's walls is the same God who found Gideon in that pit and He's the same God who will come by your pew when you're in your lowest place and your darkest night when you don't even want to hear from the voice of God. He'll come to you and say, it's time to be a man of faith. It's time to be a woman after God's own heart. It's time to get up out of the pit. It's time to fight. I don't know what you're battling today. Is it sin? Is it addiction? Is it depression? Is it a marriage on the rocks? Is it sickness? Friend, you've got all you need in Jesus' name to conquer that and to find deliverance from that. He said, I'll be with you. And that was enough. Notice number three as I finish today. The courage from a confirming God. The crisis of a corrupt generation. The calling of a cowardly general. The courage from a... Confirming God. Gideon still needed help seeing through the fog of doubt. So he asked God to give him a sign. And in this case, it was a sacrifice on a rock. Notice what the Bible says, verse 16. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midians as one man. And he said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring you you out my present and sent it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. And then the Lord reached out at the tip of his staff that was in his hand, and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. And then Gideon perceived that this was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. And to this day it stands at Orpha which belongs to the Abizarites. You see the courage that Gideon found in that moment? When God consumed the sacrifice with the touch of His rod. And isn't it interesting, by the way, that God tests Gideon with food? What's going on in the land right now? There's famine. The cupboards are bare. There's nothing to eat. And Gideon says, let me bring you something precious. Let me go scrounge around in the kitchen and and make you something that's going to cost. So he prepares the food and he brings it out to the Lord, this precious commodity. At the start of the chapter, we see Gideon trying to beat out wheat in a hole. Now put yourself in Gideon's sandals. Your family is wondering, where's the next meal going to come from? And Gideon is taking the best and laying it on the rock before the Lord. You see... 
the Lord pointed to an area in Gideon's life where obedience was costly, not convenient, and basically said to Gideon, do you trust me with this? And some of us, we need to learn this lesson. That's how God develops faith and delivers us from our doubt. Gideon, this coward, Gideon, this man who struggled with God's presence and doubt in his life, God is asking us to lay on the altar of sacrifice that thing which we would most want to keep in our possession. The only way you can develop faith is if there is also that possibility of doubt. If God removed all doubt from the process, there would be no room for faith to grow. But if you want your faith to grow and you want to answer that call, you have to lay it on the altar and say, Lord, I trust you with this. I have trouble believing that you can use me. I have trouble seeing my future. I have trouble seeing a way out of this. I don't know how you're going to meet the need, Lord, but I am yours. And Gideon found strength in surrender. By the way, God still meets people in those places. David Jeremiah tells a story in one of his books about a man named Private Marvin Schmidt. Listen to this. While fighting in the Korean War, he was mortally wounded when a mortar exploded nearby him. The bones in his right leg were shattered and a piece of shrapnel was stuck in his neck. Somehow, Schmidt was able to roll his body into a foxhole. He was helpless, and the area around him was swarming with enemy troops, and there he lay in a hole for four days, unable to move. Soon he began suffering from hunger and thirst. In the foxhole, as he murmured around, he found a bag. Inside the bag was two items, a hand grenade and a Bible. Marvin Smith said that in that moment it was as if he had a choice. Use the grenade on yourself or open the Bible and see if God is real. Smith opened his Bible and it went right to Psalm 23. And for the next day or so, he read it over and over and over again. He said, even though I wasn't a believer before the war, I felt God changing my heart in that hole. As I prayed that psalm, I began to feel at peace. I wasn't afraid even though I was sure I would die. And I gave God what was left of my life. And I felt His strength in the valley of death's shadow. After being in that hole for five days, a medic showed up. And Mr. Schmidt was taken to a mass, a mass unit. He was brought back to health in a hospital. He enjoyed a full life. And he said, but everything changed when I heard the voice of God in that hole. I hope some of you have been listening today as you find yourself in one of life's holes. God speaks. Do we have ears to hear? By the way, Gideon found that strength and surrender. You know who that reminds me of? Jesus. Because Jesus had a moment there where He had to totally surrender. Just as Gideon did in that wine press. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, He said, not my will, but thy will be done. And He surrendered His life to the Father. And He went and fought the ultimate battle as the deliverer of all mankind, giving His life on the cross for you and for me. There's strength in surrender. Gideon found it. Mr. Smith found it. And Jesus shows us as He surrendered His life. Do you know Him today? Is He your Savior? Are you in that pit? Do you need to get out? 
Listen, our musicians are coming. And as we come to a time of invitation and we close today, I'm wondering, are you listening to the voice of God? Has He been speaking loudly to you? Hey, it's time to get out of the pit. It's time to heed the call and go on to the next chapter in life. Our altar is going to be open and pressing and singing as we are finishing up today. Will you join Him and will you join us?